0: Good to see you guys tonight. What an amazing time of worship, amen? You guys, I wanted to say something just as we were singing about that last song. It's kind of an oldie, but a goodie. Just, you know, amazing love. And I want to just tell you this. Uh, God loves you. Amen? Listen to that. I'm sorry, maybe, is the mic on? I'm just kidding. Uh, God loves you. 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 And guys, I know, you know, you're like, I know that we're at church, whatever. Listen, it's one thing to know that here, and it's a completely different thing to know that here. And you might miss the entire sermon. You might get it lost in all the regulations and stuff of the Levitical law, but don't leave without knowing this. God loves you. He loves you. He loves you so much that he sent his son, Jesus, to die a horrific death so that he could be with you forever and ever and ever, and I just felt like as we were worshiping, I just needed to say that before we start, because somebody needs to hear that tonight. God really does love you, not for anything you do or offer him or when you behave well or when you, whatever, nope, just loves you because he loves you, amen? Let's pray and go home. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, little hot, if you don't mind, Mm -hmm, Trevor. Um, Let's go to Leviticus 16 tonight. I'm excited. Uh, You know, I thought last week was amazing in that how the Lord just showed up, amen, and just taught us in in, in kind of an obscure text um, some amazing lessons. And this evening, we come to actually a a pretty famous text, and and it's one that is rich uh, with with all kinds of meaning. But let's pray and we'll jump in. Father, we thank you so much uh, for your amazing grace. We thank you so much, Lord, for all the truth that we sang about. We hope that you were blessed by our time of worship. But right now, Father, would you help us? Because it's easy just to get distracted inwardly and outwardly and not be here and hear what you want to say to us. So Lord, help me. to to preach and teach in a way that is anointed by your spirit. I don't want to get in the way, and I pray that we would just be on the edge of our seat, uh, ready to not only hear, but receive and walk in all of the truth that you say in your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. amen. All right. So as we come to chapter 16 tonight, guys, we're actually coming to the end of the first major section of Leviticus. I don't know if you remember back to our introduction to Leviticus. I don't even remember when that was. I reminded us that the, the book of Leviticus is basically chopped into two halves. You have, it's not equal halves, but two main sections. Uh, One through 16 is dealing basically with this idea of sacrifice. How, does, how do we approach a holy God? And secondly, the last part, 17 through 27, is dealing with this idea of separation. How do we live in a way that's pleasing to this holy God? And of course, in the context of the Jewish people and Levitical law and all that stuff. But as we come to uh, chapter 16, we're kind of finishing up that first half. And what tonight is, is this extremely important chapter dealing with this thing called the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur. and Has anybody even heard those terms before? Anybody familiar with those terms? Raise your hand real quick. Yes or no? Okay, so majority of us have heard those terms before, but this was a special day. In fact, you could say that this was arguably the holiest day on the calendar of the Jewish people. Um, Of course, they had all the other feasts of Passover, Pentecost, all of those were Major, majorly important, but this is arguably the holiest day, because this is the day in which the priest, the great high priest, would make atonement for the sins of the entire nation. That's what this whole thing's about. It was a once-of-year thing where the high priest would make atonement for the sins of the nation. Now, as we're going to see in the chapter, not just the sins of the nation. He's actually going to make atonement for the tabernacle and for the priest himself. But the idea is, is that this is a special day that the sins of the nation atoned for for that entire year. I, I was studying for this, and we're going to get into it in a second. But as I was studying for this, I read somewhere in a commentary a phrase that just popped out. and I wrote it down. It says this. Within every human being is a hunger and a cry for atonement. And that just rattled around in my brain the last few days. Within every human being, there is a hunger and a cry for atonement. And I think one of the reasons I was thinking about it so much, because I was questioning whether that was true or not. Is that true? Is there, is there something in every single one of us that is crying out for atonement? Well, I think to better answer that, we need to kind of define what we're talking about when we say atonement. Um, I don't know about you guys. I don't use that word in my everyday language. Like, uh, I was going to atone for my thing of not paying. You know, I don't, I don't use that word. Sorry, I couldn't even think of an example for it. You probably don't use that word very often either, but the Old Testament uses it a lot. It's 100 times, over 100 times in the Old Testament, you're going to run across that word atonement. 15 times in this chapter alone, you're going to come up against the word atonement. And the idea of atonement is, uh, I'll give you a real basic um, definition. It basically means to cover, to cover over. And and then as you read into the, the depths of that definition, it means to pardon or to make reconciliation. In fact, The word is is used like one time in the New Testament. It's actually in Romans 5.11. I'll read it. It says this. um, Moreover than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received, Old King James says, atonement. Better translation is reconciliation. Now you're getting to the idea of it. The idea of of atonement. There's an old um, kind of overly simplistic definition of it. If you break the word apart, atonement. At one meant. At one meant. To make one again is the idea. When you're talking about atonement, you're talking about a sacrifice that brings a relationship back into harmony or reconciliation is able to happen on the basis of a substitutionary sacrifice. The closest New Testament word would be propitiation. And I know that's another word that we could spend 20 minutes defining, we won't, but it's the same idea. In First John, John 2, 2, where Christ is our propitiation, what does that mean? It means by his substitutionary sacrifice, he has atoned for or paid for or covered our sins so that we can be reconciled back into a right relationship with the Father. Amen. Does that make sense? Give me a something, a little nod. Yes, you're tracking with me? Okay. Just trying to lay some groundwork. So back to that statement I made earlier, I, I think it is true. I think that this is... The issue of humanity, whether you recognize it or not. In fact, you you don't recognize it until you come to faith in Christ. That you're hungering and you're desiring, you're longing for what? Reconciliation. To walk in the coolness of the day with the Father once again. It's like there's something built into us that remembers, if you would, that Adam and Eve once walked in the coolness of the day in perfect fellowship with the Father. And that has been broken and we're longing to get back to that to be reconnected, to have reconciliation. And so that's probably what he meant by that when he made that statement. So all of that to say is that this chapter is dealing with how the sins of the nation could be atoned for and that they could have that reconciliation with the Father. And it's a pretty amazing thing when you think about it. This this day is covering all the sins for the whole year. Kind of an amazing thing. Um, This chapter deals with... um, not only, like I said, the, the people, but also the place and the priests, and then um, a couple other fun facts I was going to give you, but we'll just go ahead and move on. I do want to say this by way of introduction. Again, keep in mind, back to that introductory lesson months and months and months ago about Leviticus, guys, Leviticus is what we call the seedbed of New Testament theology. What I mean by that is as we're going through this, this chapter in particular, It's laying this firm foundation to understand New Testament theology. I mean, we look at this, we go, okay, this is great stuff back then, whatever. No, no, no. For you and I to really understand the depths of what Christ accomplished for us, we need to understand this. And I forgot to tell you earlier, you might want to put a finger in Hebrews chapter 9 and 10. We're going to go there later. But you can't even understand Hebrews 9 and 10 unless you understand this chapter. So it's super important. Another note on that before we move on is that as we go through this, keep in mind, we're going to see all kinds of pictures and types of Jesus. The great high priest, Aaron, it's a picture of Jesus. The very sacrifices themselves, picture of Jesus. So it's all about him. Okay, so I know I laid a lot of groundwork, but let's go ahead and jump into the chapter. I want to not blast through it, but I want to move at a pretty good clip so that we can make some applications uh, at the end. You guys still with me? Okay, let's do this. Chapter 16, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron and your brother not to come near at any time to the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear before the cloud over the mercy seat. By the way, the word mercy seat literally means atonement cover. So that's kind of an interesting phrase. Um, what is this all about? This great chapter on atonement opens up actually with a warning and a reminder. He says, now now, keep in mind, uh, tell Aaron, um, you know, don't... Uh, He said, after the death of the sons of Aaron, who drew near before the Lord and died. He says, basically, don't make that mistake. Tell Aaron, don't make the same mistake your sons made. Now, if if you remember that scene at all, that was a long time ago. It's way back in chapter nine and 10. Let me just refresh your memory because this had just happened. This was very fresh to them. This was on the very forefront of their mind, but for us, we've kind of forgotten what happened. Well, in chapter nine, there was this big inauguration ceremony for the priesthood. It's like the first time ever they're using priests, and like there's these special sacrifices and all this stuff they got to do to kind of inaugurate this whole priestly ministry. And they do it, chapter 9. And God answers their sacrifices with fire from heaven, and the glory of the Lord is in that place. And there's all this excitement. And then Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, get all caught up and in, in, the, in the scene, and by the way, the chapter mentions they might have been drinking as well, so they weren't using good judgment. And they grabbed this incense thing, they put incense in this little censer, and evidently they try to go into the Holy of Holies just on their own. And do you guys remember what happens? God killed them on the, on the spot. And so basically what God is saying is, before we talk about anything else on this Day of Atonement thing, you need to understand this. Don't think you can come just at any time into my presence. Now, that, that, now what we're going to see is this whole thing took place on one day out of the year. One man was allowed to go into the very presence of God. Notice what it said, that his glory would hover over the mercy seat. In the tabernacle, there was two compartments, for lack of a better phrase. The first tent, and then a divider, a veil, and the second tent called the Holy of Holies. Inside the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant covered by the mercy seat, and it was above the mercy seat that something of the actual Shekinah glory of God, obviously a tent can't contain the glory of God, but something of his presence was there, and he says, look, you don't just get to come into my presence, but one man on one day out of the year will be allowed to come in. And again, guys, what's important about that for for us is that this is a reminder of the absolute holiness of God and the absolute unapproachability of God, and the absolute separation between God and man, because why? He is holy, and we are not. And you don't just presumptuously come into the presence of God on your terms. He's basically making it loud and clear. You come when I say you can come, how, you, how I say you can come, and, and in every way. Amen? Now, that's, that's gonna come into play later in our application, but just tuck it away for now. Starts with a warning. But then in verses three, Uh, And through 5, he's going to kind of start to explain how this is going to work. He gives the preparation. He says there in verse 3, But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy, now check this out, put on the holy linen coat and have the linen undergarments or underwear, if you would, on his body. And shall tie the linen sash around his waist And wear the linen turban, these are the holy garments, he shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. And He shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one uh, ram for a burnt offering. Basically, in those verses, he's giving a quick overview of what they're going to need, how it's going to go down, grab a bull, grab a couple goats, grab a ram, you know, for these various offerings, which we'll talk about in a moment. But I do want to just spe- just kind of point out, notice what the high priest Aaron was to wear on that day. The linen underwear with the linen thing and the linen sash and the linen hat. Normally, the high priest wore elaborate, beautiful, ornate clothing. We spent I mean, there's chapters that painstakingly, you know, describe all that stuff. You got the robe and the the ephod and the breastplate and the shoulder things and the crown. And you guys remember all that stuff? All very significant, all very much typical of Jesus Christ. But this is great. He says, but when you come into my presence on that day, when you're just in my presence, the only thing you're going to wear is linen. Now, there's a lot we could talk about there, but linen oftentimes in the Bible speaks of righteousness, that inward righteousness. It was usually underneath all the elaborate stuff. And and he says, but when you come into my presence, all the ornate, all the elaborate, all that stuff, leave it outside because it's just going to be me and you, and it's just going to be linen, righteousness. Now, by the way, ultimately, it speaks of Christ's righteousness, He is the only one who's righteous. And when we are in Christ, the Bible says in Isaiah, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, he robes us in his righteousness. Amen? I'm jumping ahead to some application, but but hopefully you're connecting the dots already for the New Testament application of all this stuff. Guys, we don't get to approach God based on anything except the very righteousness of Jesus Christ that we did not earn, but that was robed upon us because of our faith in Christ. Amen? Amen? Another, I'll give you this so you can chase it down on your own. For time's sake, I won't develop it too much. But in Ezekiel 44, God is talking to the sons of the priest, the sons of Zadok. And he basically says, when you come into my presence, you only wear linen. And and he makes this really interesting um, comment, and I'm paraphrasing. He says, basically, don't wear wool or anything that makes you sweat in my presence. And I've always liked that because, you know, when, when, when the priest was in the presence of God, he was literally ministering to God. Nobody's watching. It's not for the people necessarily. I mean, it is, but he's in the presence of God. He's with God. And he says, when you're ministering to me, don't wear anything that makes you sweat. I want you to wear linen. Linen's light, breathed. It's easy, right? And guys, I've always been taught, and it's a great reminder that that's how ministry to the Lord should be. It shouldn't be wool. It shouldn't be itchy and hard and sweaty. I'm not saying ministry for the Lord is easy, but what I'm saying is if we're trying to do it in our effort, in our sweat of our own brow and make it happen, uh, then you're doing it wrong. <laughs> Jesus said, my burden is what? Easy and light. And I, I've loved this about my wife over the years where maybe I'm getting ready for a Bible study or I'm doing some ministry thing and, and I'm just like really all getting amped about it and, this and, that, and she'll just sometimes say like, Linen, not wool. Stifle, woman? That's usually my response. No. But it's true. And it's like I go, (sighs) because there's a tendency in us to be like, we got to really work it out. What is God going to do without me if I don't come through with this thing? Relax. It's linen, not wool. His burden is easy and light. Amen. And nothing that causes sweat was to be in his presence. So verse 6, now we get into... little more detail. He says, Aaron uh, shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, uh, one lot for the Lord and the other for Azazel. Now that's interesting, probably pronouncing it wrong. Verse 9, Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord, and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel uh, shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. So again, he's, he's kind of prescribing what's going to happen here. We'll talk more about this in a moment. But he says, first of all, you're going to need a bull for a sin offering for yourself. Again, we'll talk about that in a sec. But then he says, check this out. To make atonement for the people, you're going to need two goats to make this happen. Grab those two babies, those two goats, not babies, but goats. Cast die, you know, know, I said dice, but cast lots, you know, and however they did that. And one lot's going to fall to this goat. Okay, that goat then will be the one that's going to die. And the blood's going to be sprinkled the whole trip. The other goat, that one's going to be Azazel or Azazel as he calls it later, the scapegoat. Now, there's a lot of interesting, you know, you can research it all you want. There's some debate on what this even means as as a zeal, because it's like a proper name. Some people think it's a proper name of a place or like even to Satan himself. Idea being that one will send the sin right back to Satan is the idea. That's the one that's going to be the scapegoat. So two goats. That's all I just want you to get for now. We'll come back to it because it's actually hugely important. Now, look at verse 11. So Aaron shall present the bull. So grab that bull that you have, and he's going to make a sin offering for himself, and he shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself and make a sin. Uh, we'll just pause there for a second at the end of verse 11. I just want to point this out. Remember when I said that Aaron is a type of Jesus because Aaron's the high priest? The book of Hebrews says, Jesus is our great high priest, okay? So Aaron foreshadows Jesus. But this is where that typology begins to break down a little bit. Why? Because Aaron had to take a bull and kill it. Before he could do anything for the people, before he could go in before God on behalf of the people and minister to the people, what does God say? Take care of yourself first, Aaron. Why? Because you're just a man. He might have been the high priest, but he was just a dude. He was just a man who... Committed sins, who fell short. And so what was God saying? You need to take care of yourself and your household first, Aaron, before you start thinking about ministering for my people. Amen? What do I like about that? Well, what I like is that that's just kind of how it should be. You know, a lot of times I want to be in the ministry. I want to do things for the Lord. Awesome. But the most important ministry is that you got to take care of yourself. That sounds very, like, self-helpy. I don't mean it like that. But you do have to take care of yourself spiritually. You have to be healthy spiritually if you're going to try to take care of anybody else spiritually. Does that make sense? You've got to yourself be right with God. You've got to yourself be walking with the Lord. And you've got to minister at your own family before you want to, to do things for everybody else. And guys, this has been a downfall in the ministry since it began. Is that we can get so caught up in doing things for other people and being about the Lord's business and ministry and neglect home base. It's easy to do. I think if you've been in the ministry, we say uh, for any length of time, you've probably messed up in some way. I know I have. But this, let this kind of be a warning for anybody who wants to be involved in full-time ministry type stuff. Take care of home base. Really, really take care of yourself first. Take care of your marriage. Take care of your kids. Amen? Because if that's out of whack, man, it it just short-circuits all that God wants to do in and through you. But he says, look, you've you've got to take care of yourself. Now, again, that breaks down for Jesus because he was perfect. You know, the Bible says he was tempted in every single way, yet without sin. He lived the perfect life, which, by the way, listen, this is not some random point. Which, by the way, because Jesus never sinned, he's able to not only be our high priest, but he's able to be our sacrifice. He lived the life we should have lived, but then he died the death we should have died. And we'll talk more about that in a second. Well, then not only does he make an offering for himself, uh, verse 12 says, He shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar for before the Lord. Uh, That is probably from off the altar of incense two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small and shall bring it uh, inside the veil and put the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony so that he does not die. This is so fascinating. Look at verse 14. He shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle with his fingers on the front of the mercy seat on the east side. On the front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his fingers seven times. So you guys get this picture. He's all in linen. He's killed that animal for his sacrifice for him, for his sins. He then gets this little censer pot, puts hot coals from off the altar of incense on there, grabs a couple handfuls of incense, sneaks behind the veil. Now he's going from the holy place into the holy of holies with the blood and with this incense. And he was supposed to like put the incense on the coals so that it would make this cloud of incense to cover the mercy seat. Can you imagine the the thickness of the fragrance in that little 15 by 15 foot room, I think it was, just full of the smoke? I can't stand the smell of incense personally, but um, I'm sure this smelled great. Um, But it was supposed to just create this super thick cloud that would kind of, in a sense, blur his vision of the mercy seat. And I'm like, why? You know, that's like the Bible teacher in me. I'm like trying to find out why, why is he doing this? But it says right here, so you don't die. And I think probably one of the best answers, I'm not saying I have all the answers on this, but I I think one of the best answers is that you don't look too directly at God's presence. That there's some kind of barrier because you can't, what makes us think that he could look at the presence of God and live when we can't even look at the sun that God created and not have our eyes burned out. And he says, you can't look directly at me. And then also that instance, by the way, also speaks of the prayers of the saints, just filling that place. Just a beautiful picture. Nonetheless, that's what he was supposed to do. Let's keep moving. Verse 15, then he shall kill the goat for the sin offering that is for the people. So he would come out. He actually didn't go into the Holy of Holies one time. He went in three times on that day. He shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkle it on the mercy seat in front of the mercy seat, and he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions and all their sins. Now, I want to pause here for a second because this is actually really significant. He comes in now with the blood of the goat, which is not for just him. This is for the sins of the whole nation. The sins of the nation, the unintentional sins, the the national sins, the personal sins, all the sins of the nation. He's coming with the blood that is to atone for that. But notice what the, the word that is used here. It says, because of their transgressions and their sins. Now, some have pointed out what's so significant about the use of that word right there is that a transgression is different than an unintentional sin. A transgression is when there's a line that says, do not trespass, do not cross that line, and you go, yeah, I see the line. I don't care. I'm going to cross it anyway. That's a trespass. Hiking somewhere you shouldn't hike. <laughs> Doing something you shouldn't do. We've all, we've all done it. We've all seen the line and intentionally crossed the line. The reason that's so significant significant of that interpretation Just kidding. Um, The reason that that is so significant is because there was no offerings for intentional sins. There was offerings for unintentional sins. But evidently, the Day of Atonement was covering even those things done intentionally wrong. So just the scope of the sacrifice is staggering. Also, he shall do for the tent of meeting, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness, now, no one may be in the tent of meeting with, uh, at the time that he enters the tent to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out. So nobody's supposed to be in that other compartment while this is going down. Uh, he will make atonement for his house, for all the assembly of Israel, verse 18. Then he shall go out uh, to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around, he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it, with his finger seven times and cleanse it and con- uh, concentrate, concentrate, consecrate it uh, from the uncleanness uh, of the people of Israel. Um, if you're wondering what's happening here, I'll just quickly—he's not only making atonement for the sins of the people, but did you notice he's also putting some of the blood on the furniture, on the altar, on all these things? Why? The idea is is that those things have been polluted. By the sins of the people as well. So he's not only atoning for the sins of the people, he is ceremonially cleaning, if you would, purifying the furniture itself, the idea being so that it's clean and God's holy presence can be in that place. And so you can explore that more later, but that's kind of the idea. Verse 20. This is great. And when he has made an end, now I really want you to tune in here. When he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and for the tent of meeting in the altar, He shall present the live goat. So here we go, that second goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of that live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins. And he shall put on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in his readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat free into the wilderness. You guys ever heard the term scapegoat? Yes or no? That's what this is. This is the whole idea of a scapegoat. So here's what's happening. One one goat is killed. The blood is shed and applied. The second goat, they pull it in. They lay their hands on it and confess the sins of the nation, confess by name the specific things Lord, forgive us for our rebellion. Forgive us for our unjustness. God, we confess to you. We've done these things, and they're symbolically, guys, transferring those sins onto this goat. That's the whole idea. By putting their hands on it, t- the sins are going symbolically, like through their arms. You can quote me on that. Onto the goat. Now, the goat is symbolically bearing those sins on it. Now, what do they do with the goat? They send it off into the wilderness. Now, when we think wilderness, I think of like trees and beautiful. Wilderness in Judea is desert, barrenness, nothingness. I don't know if this is true. I I I can't verify this for you, but I heard another teacher mention this one time about how, you know, there's a guy that would go out. But now, this is a Sabbath day. They can only travel so far without breaking a Sabbath. Right? So, what they would do is you did have a a prescribed area that you could travel without breaking the Sabbath. So, they would measure that out and set up a little tent, and then measure out another length and set up a tent, and measure out another length. And what they do is they take that goat and, like, okay, I can't walk anymore because I don't want to break Sabbath. I got you, boo, and I'll take it from there. And they walk it out, and they walk it. And then what they're doing is they escort that thing all the way out of town, like making sure that thing doesn't circle back. We don't want those sins coming back into town. And they let it go, and then finally it just it disappears, and they make sure it is nowhere to be seen, never coming back. And then they would have some way of signaling, like flashing something, you know, from like hilltop to hilltop, like, it's gone, it's gone, the sins are gone. And it would, eventually news would make it back, it, the scapegoat's gone. Now, that's beautiful, because those two goats speak exactly what Jesus Christ has done for us. His blood was spilled to pay for our sins. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. But Jesus has not only shed his blood to forgive us of our sin, but he has taken the sin that was on us and he has removed it from us as far as the east is from the west. Amen? The Bible says in Jeremiah 31 and in Hebrews chapter 8, that there will become a new covenant in Christ. And part of that new covenant is that he would remember our sins no more. Can somebody say amen? Amen. You're not only forgiven, your sins have been removed from you. They're, They're not attached to you anymore. They've been dropped into the ocean. Isaiah says they've been thrown behind the back. The, uh, the, the pic, whatever picture you want to use, the point is, is that your sins are no longer connected to you, and they will never reunite with you because Christ has not only forgiven, he has forgotten. How can you, well, how can God forget anything? He's got. He's got selective amnesia. He just chooses never to remember those sins again. I heard somebody illustrate it like this one time, you know, if, You sometimes come to God in prayer, and you're like, God, I'm so sorry, and I confess that I did this, and okay, thank you, I'm forgiven, but a day goes by, and you're still a little guilty about it. Lord, I want to ask you to forgive me for that thing, and it's as if God says, what are you talking about? I don't even know what you're talking about. What thing? Because he chooses to forget our sins. Amen? We're going to circle back to that because it's too good not to. But let's uh, move on. Verse 23, now Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting and shake off, uh, or excuse me, take off the linen garment. He might have shooken, I don't know, um, that he put on when he went into the holy place and he'll leave it there. He'll take a bath uh, or bathe his body in water in a holy place um, and put on garments and come out and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people. And the fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar, and he who lets the goat go to Azazel shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterwards he can come back into the camp. He's like, You touch that goat, go wash, you go take a bath. You don't get to come in until you do. Verse 27. And the bull for the sin offering and the goat of the sin offering whose blood was uh, brought in to make atonement in the holy place shall be carried outside the camp. Their skin, their flesh, their dung shall be burned up with fire. We covered a lot of these things in earlier chapters. Verse 28, and he who burns them shall wash his clothes, bathe his body in water, and afterwards he may come uh, back into the camp. The only thing I really want to point out in this paragraph is, is, is the next thing that happened, which is verse 23. After Aaron made atonement for his sins, with the bull, after he made atonement for the sins of the people with the two goats, then what do they do? They bring in um, I want to make sure I say it right. Well, whatever, I think it was the, the Bull or whatever it was. doesn't matter. For the burnt offering. The point is, is that the sin offering's been made. Atonement has been made. So what do they do next? They offer a burnt offering. And I just love that, you guys. I love the picture of that. And maybe you've, I just want to quickly remind you, the significance of that is the burnt offering, going back to, I think, chapter 3, was significant, or chapter 1, actually, because it was different than all the other offerings. The burnt offering was completely consumed on the altar. All the other offerings, some portion of it came back to the priest or to the person who brought it or both, and they had like a barbecue with God was the idea. But the burnt offering was, you took that animal and you gave the whole thing to God. You just burned the whole thing. You didn't take any back to eat or whatever. It's all, and the idea was, Just like that entire animal is being burned up and just consecrated to God, so too my life is fully yours, God. It's it's exactly what Paul says in Romans 12. Pastor Steve brought it up on Sunday. After 11 chapters of doctrine of all that Jesus has done for us in chapter 12, finally Paul pulls the trigger and says, therefore I beseech you, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as what? Living sacrifice. He's he's drawing on this, this picture, God's not interested in you bringing a dead bull anymore. He says, bring your entire life. But when does that happen? When you understand all that Christ has done for you. You see, when you see that your sins have been atoned for, when you see that your sin is not only forgiven, but is gone from you forever, the natural, the most reasonable act of spiritual worship at that point is to say, not some of my life, not parts or compartments of my life, but my entire life, oh God, I consecrate to you. Amen? And guys, that's the only time that that happens. Now, I can be a pastor up here. I can be like, come on, give your life to Jesus. It's, it's dumb for me to do that because you will give your life to Jesus. When you see Jesus, finally see Jesus on that cross for you and for your sins. No one's got to tell you, to dedicate yourself to Christ. Because when a person gets it, when a person finally understands all that Christ has done, by grace, they fall on their face and they say, Lord, not some of my life. You get all of my life. Amen? That's the burnt offering that that's brought. And the order of that is significant. Well, let's, let's wrap this up and then we'll get past the introduction. And it shall be a statute to you forever in the seventh month and on the tenth day of the month, You shall afflict yourselves and do no work, neither, uh, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. Verse 29, uh, just note the timing of it. Um, The seventh month, the tenth day, usually around October, November, I think it's September 28th this year is Yom Kippur. Um, Notice that they're to afflict themselves and to have a Sabbath. Verse 30, for on this day uh, atonement shall be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. Listen. It is a Sabbath of a solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement wearing the holy garments. Now just pause for a second. The other element of this Day of Atonement, guys, don't don't lose me yet, is that while all this is happening, the people... To do two things. Number one, they're to afflict themselves literally to fast. This is the one day in the Jewish calendar where it was like a mandatory fast. Afflict themselves. Don't eat that whole day. Afflict yourself. And they were to have a Sabbath. That was, they were not to go to work. It wasn't like, okay, I'm I'm gonna fast, but I'll just keep myself busy working. No, God says, I want you to sit still. And I want you to eat nothing, and I want you to afflict yourself. Now, listen, he's not saying afflict yourself, beat yourself, so that you can atone for your own sins. That is not what he's saying. But what he is saying is this I want you to take this seriously. I want you really to have a penitent heart. I want you to take this time to really, truly seek me, and fast, and pray, and slow down, and just stop everything. And it would seem as though the only thing that would keep the Day of Atonement from taking was if they did it with an insincere heart. Otherwise, it's just a religious activity that they would go through. Isn't that not a great word for us, guys? Isn't that not a great word for church? Isn't that not a great word for God's people throughout all the ages that we are so capable of going through outward religious activity and our heart being a million miles away? That we can come into a worship service and sing the songs and, and all that, but our heart a mile away from God. And God is saying, I want you to take this seriously, to be penitent, and to really truly do business with me. Now, I'm going to reserve the right. I don't even know if I have the authority to do this, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to reserve the right to come back to verse 29 and following maybe next week because there's some more I want to talk about with this idea of fasting and prayer. Lastly, he shall, verse 33, make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and the altar, make atonement for the priests and the people and the assembly, and shall be a statute forever for you, that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year for all of their sins. And Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses. Now, I do see the time, and I'm going to abbreviate my notes here real quick, but I I don't want to leave without at least drawing a couple of, I think, important applications to this. Um, You might want to turn over real quick to Hebrews chapter 9. And again, I I won't read all of what I was going to read necessarily, but I I want you to have a finger there so you can reference it. As we we look at the Day of Atonement, as we consider how it applies to us in the New Testament, um, we realize that it all speaks of Jesus. Amen? of his sacrifice for us, of of what he accomplished on our behalf, and how our sins are atoned for. Um, But there's two things in particular that I just want to point out. I'll just give them to you right now, and I'll go back and kind of elaborate on each one. The first one is this idea of conscience. If you're writing notes, the first one is conscience. Here's what I mean by that. Let me start, actually, by just reading a little bit. This is from uh, Hebrews 9, verse 13. If the blood of goats and bulls and sprinkling of a defiled person with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, listen to this, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify, listen, our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Now look at chapter 10, verse 1. For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they have not ceased to be offered since the worshipers would have been cleansed and would no longer have any conscience consci- <clears throat> consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of their sins every year. Now, this is the verse I want you to hear, because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Guys, this is all important. Hebrews is basically teaching us in that section, there's a lot there, but listen, that the old Levitical system was incomplete, and it didn't work for a lot of reasons. But one of the Biggest reasons is it could not deal. This day of atonement, though God honored it and covered the sins of the people, it could not deal with the conscience of a person dealing with their sins. The word conscience simply means to have knowledge, to be aware of your sin. Intuitively, the people of God knew, yes, praise God, By virtue of the fact I brought these goats in faith, God has covered my sin. But they knew that they still didn't have their sins completely taken away. Why? Because it's impossible for the blood of a goat or the blood of a bull to adequately pay for the sins of a human. It's it's not balanced. Does that make sense? So intuitively, they understood it's not a fair trade-off. It's not a fair trade-off. I mean, God, thank you for honoring this by faith and covering my sin. But he says by virtue of the fact that he had to come back every year and every year and every it was just a constant reminder that you keep needing to do these things because they're actually not adequate sacrifices to once and for all deal with your sin until Jesus came as the Lamb of God and lived, as I said earlier, the life we should have lived, perfect without blemish, without sin, but then he died the death we deserve to die. Jesus Christ became the adequate, perfect substitution for humans, amen? The blood of a man died for the sins of men and women, and because he was perfect, he was able to actually pay for us as a substitute. It wasn't symbolically transferring our sins to Him. Our sins were laid upon Him by the Father, and God poured out His wrath for those sins on His very own Son. Amen? That our, listen, that means our conscience can actually be free. It means we actually, like truly, cannot have a conscience or, or a guilty conscience about the sins we've committed. You know, even though Jesus has done this for us, and even though a lot, of, you know, a lot of us, if not all of us in here are Christians, have you ever had your conscience bother you from sins you've done in the past? Anyone? I like what Ray Steadman says. He says, our sins and our shameful secrets are like a dark cloud that hides the shining face of God. How true is that? Anybody have any shameful secrets? Don't raise your hand. I know you do. You don't need to raise your hand. We all got them. We've all got those things. that we, we can't even believe we did them. And from time to time, even in church maybe, those things will pop up or a face will pop up or something you did or said or a lie or a, uh, whatever. And all of a sudden, here it comes again. It's just a, and what do you want to do? You just want to pull back from God because you just feel that guilt and shame again. Can I tell you this? That is not God's will for your life. God wants you to be free from that shame, free from that guilt. And have and listen, you can actually walk through life with a clean and pure conscience. Not because you did something to undo the wrong that you did. Jesus did something to undo the wrong that you did. And it has fully been paid for. And it does God no honor to continually beating yourself up over that sin that he's already forgiven. Amen? You know why we still don't walk with a free conscience and guilt-free all the time? Because it's a lack of faith. We just really don't believe God's word. We just really don't appropriate grab onto the fact that the Bible says, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That he's taken our sins, Psalm 103, and separated us for the east is from the west and all the other verses I brought up earlier. The reality is we just don't believe God's word. But what if we actually believe this stuff? What if we were actually like, okay, I'm to- you mean I'm like, forgiven, forgiven? Yeah. Okay. And you can be free if you grab onto it with faith. Amen? You know, a lot of times we don't, we, we, we wrestle with that because of our own pride. Because we, and it comes out in statements like this. I can't believe I did that. That's a prideful statement. I can't believe I did that. Why can't you believe you did that? I'm just better than that. Well, clearly, no, you're not. What it just means is you just don't believe what the Bible says about you, that you are a wretched, filthy, disgusting sinner whose heart is wicked and deceived, and you're capable of doing things fouler than you can even imagine, because you are a broken individual. Hallelujah. Welcome to church. You're a broken idiot like the rest of us, apart from Christ, apart from Christ, apart from Christ. I just feel so unworthy. It's because you are unworthy. God doesn't love you because you're worthy. He loves you and gave you your worth because He loves you. He's the one that, in spite of who we are, has loved us and forgiven us and taken our sins away from us. And you need to just get over yourself. I can't believe what I did that. Well, just believe it. You're worse than you think you are. That's the beauty of this whole thing. Like as bad as we are, like God still loves us. And when you grab a hold of that, you're just so free, guys. A lot of times we wrestle with this unhealthy sense of guilt and shame and bad conscience because we're just not believing what the Bible says. I triple-dog dare you just to believe it. Grab a hold of it. There is another reason why we struggle with it, and and, and it's a little more insidious. It's because we have an enemy named Satan, who Ephesians 6.16 says he's firing fiery darts at us, isn't he? And I believe a lot of times those fiery darts or those thoughts that try to come into our mind, God doesn't love you and you're not accepted by God and you're not this and you're only that and he's just so disappointed in you. And how do we fight those? With the shield of faith. Second Corinthians 10.5 is an important chapter and verse where you t- it says you take thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ. If you've got that dark cloud of condemnation and that guilty conscience hovering over you, a lot of it could be Satan is just lying to you so you take those lies, and you hold them up against the truth of God's word, and if they don't match, you say, no, in the name of Jesus, I'm not believing that because I am forgiven, and he's not reminding me of that sin, and I am free, and I don't have to bear that shame anymore. Amen? Yeah. Oh, that's, that's important stuff. That's conscience. The last one is access, and this is quick, but one, we can have a, a clean conscience. That's what Hebrews teaches us. They knew that the blood of goats couldn't do it, But Jesus' blood sufficiently did. And you can walk out of here with a clean conscience tonight. Second thing is access. Remember when he said in verses 1 through 2, don't think you can just come into my presence any old time you want to come into my presence? There is a veil there. But when Jesus died and evidently took his blood into the heavenly temple, which is a whole other teaching, and presented that offering for us, When he was dying on that cross, when his body was being shredded on the cross, Matthew 27 says the veil in the temple that was standing at the time ripped from top to bottom spontaneously, and it was evidently real thick. And they were in there, and all of a sudden just the whole thing physically, literally ripped and fell down. And what that communicated was God was saying through that act from the top down, not from the bottom up, as if it was man ripping his way into God's presence. God says, no, I'm ripping that thing from the top down because as my son is dying for you, you now have open access to me. It's not one man on one day in the year. It's any man, any woman who puts their faith in Jesus Christ and is covered by his blood and his righteousness. You can just come into my presence any time you want. Amen? Amen. Let me read to this. Real quickly, and I'll end on this. This is Hebrews chapter 10, and it's this whole point, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence... Do you think Aaron came in with confidence? I think he was trembling in his sandals. We have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus... By the new and the living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is the veil, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We could go on and on. But this is the language of the New Testament. Not stay away, but what? Come on in. Draw near. Draw near. We have open access to the, to the very presence of God. I'll go one step further. The Bible teaches this. You see, there is no temple anymore, and there should never be another temple in the sense of life. There's going to be, but we don't need it there to be anymore because there's no need for any other sacrifices, and God has changed the program around. Instead of his glory being in a, a little room, in a temple, in a city, at one spot in the world, instead, when he died and was buried and raised again he sent his holy spirit into the person that puts their faith in him and the bible says that we are the temple of the holy spirit that he actually that we are in a sense the holy of holies because his spirit abides in us and guys you can leave this place tonight you can go sit in your car and just be in the presence of god if you want you can go to the beach tomorrow And you can just sit and read your Bible and be in the presence of God. You can get up early in the morning and you can just be in the presence of God and worship while we're, right now, as you're listening to a a rambling pastor, you can forget me and just be in the presence of God because he dwells in you by his Holy Spirit. Amen? We have free access to the Father because of the new and living way, namely Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's stand together. Last couple weeks that I've taught, I, I know they've been long. Uh, these, these are not light chapters. I commend you for coming and paying attention and listening. Um, please don't miss what the Holy Spirit would say to you tonight. And if he has spoken to you tonight about something, please just don't leave. Talk to him. Respond. If you want to come up and get prayer, we'll pray with you. But, you know, I couldn't help this whole preparation time thinking that, that, that idea of conscience was a big one. That maybe there's some or a couple, maybe one or two in here where, where you're just like plagued with this. You just can't get over some of the past stuff. And I want to tell you tonight, you can be free from that. Stop trying to pay God back. Stop trying to promise you'll do, never do, just receive. Just receive. And I, and in a sense, you kind of almost have to forgive yourself. You almost be like, okay, I did that, but it's under the blood of Jesus, and I don't have to carry that around anymore. You can be free, amen? And then as we go our way this week, guys, let's draw near to Jesus. This kind of language you couldn't use in the Old Testament. They didn't just get to go into God's presence, and yet we can anytime we want. Amen? All right, let's pray out. Father, we thank you for your word. I admit that I feel like a pipsqueak trying to explain this stuff. It's so much bigger than me and my little brain. And it'll probably take all of eternity for me to get it down, but I know this. I know, Jesus, you did it all. And I know without you, I could never come into God's presence. And I know I've been set free from all the junk and sin of my past and my fu- future too. And I know, Lord, that you've rode me in Your righteousness. And I know that I, my sins are forgiven and I have a clean conscience. And I just pray, God, that you would massage these truths into our very heart and that we would live like we believe it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, God bless you guys. Say hi to three people and you're dismissed.